This is a special bonus episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. And so you don't miss regular features like History in Five Fridays. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. This is The History Author Show. Thank you for streaming us at our iHeartRadio channel, subscribing on iTunes, or making the effort to find us on your favorite personal media outlet. We're so happy you're here. I have read a bunch of books on or by Sir Winston Spencer Churchill, so you can understand that I thought I had the full story of how he inspired the British Empire and its people to persevere during its darkest hour, the Second World War. But there's one aspect of the greatest Britain's life that's overlooked or even misrepresented outright by people looking to spew 140 characters of rage on social media. That topic is Churchill's faith and his belief in God. Today's guest, Jonathan Sands, happens to be Winston Churchill's great-grandson. But he's more than a man with a lion in his family tree. He's an accomplished public speaker, author, and a genuinely fascinating person in his own right. Jonathan found this void in the historical record as he walked his own spiritual journey, and he was inspired to fill it after being encouraged to do so by none other than the late Sir Martin Gilbert, Churchill's official biographer. The resulting book is a rare combination. It's part biography, part history, part blueprint for all of us to go forward together. It's God and Churchill, how the great leader's sense of divine destiny changed his troubled world and offers hope for hours. And it lands on your bookshelf the day we're uploading this episode, October 6, 2015. Along with former White House staffer Wallace Henley, Godin Churchill paints an intimate portrait of the British leader so admired on both sides of the Atlantic and around the world. And more than paint a new picture, I think what this book really does is fill in some of the spaces of the existing portrait we have of Churchill. And it lets him speak for himself on his views about religion, the Almighty, and Hitler's perversion of those things. You can follow Jonathan Sands on Twitter, at Jonathan Sands. And Sands, by the way, is spelled S-A-N-D-Y-S. You can also toss him a like at facebook.com slash WSC speaker. And visit his website, leadlikechurchill.org. We've heard from Jonathan before on the History Author Show and praised his skills as a public speaker who keeps his great-grandfather's legacy alive. Now, I'm pleased to introduce him to you in person. Here's my chat with Jonathan Sands on God and Churchill. I'm excited to be on the line with Jonathan Sands, whose book, God and Churchill, I just finished devouring. It was really a great read. Welcome to the History Author Show, Jonathan. Thank you very much, Dean. It's a real pleasure to be here. 
Now, at first, you told me you intended to call it Churchill and God, and then you at some point decided, due to the overwhelming evidence, that you were going to pursue a whole different way. Isn't that correct? Yes, that actually is correct. Uh, The purpose of God and Churchill is not to prove the existence of God. That's an ongoing debate that I don't think is ever going to come to an end, or at least it'll come to an end the day the world ends. But after reviewing the evidence, my co-author Wallace Henley and I wrote God and Churchill really for three central purposes. One was to disprove the erroneous belief that great-grandpapa was either an agnostic or an atheist. Two, it was to use the already well-researched and undisputed historical evidence of Churchill's life and times to show that his life would not have been possible had something unworldly not intervened. And thirdly, by proving that, it was to offer hope that if God did intervene in Churchill's life and also intervened at times during the Second World War, then it is entirely possible that he is still at work today in the world and also in our individual lives. And I like that you designed the book to appeal to this wide audience. If you're a Christian, if you're Jewish, if you're an agnostic, if you're an atheist, this is a unique book in that sense that it covers really something for everybody. When I thought of God and Churchill, I knew that I had the experience and the expertise when it came to my great-grandfather, but I lacked the theological experience. Wallace and I met through a mutual friend, a gentleman called Jay Stanker, and this book wouldn't have happened had Jay not introduced Wallace to me. And Wallace and I sat down and we talked, and I really liked him. He worked in the White House. He was an aide in the White House. He's an award-winning journalist. He's had 30 years theological experience and has a doctorate and degrees and things like that. I wouldn't have considered myself a Christian at that time when I started researching this, and it was very much this book that brought me back to God. So I knew that I needed to co-author this with somebody who actually, for want of a better expression knew more about God or knew who God was. I didn't want the evidence that we present. I didn't want it to be an over-religious tract in any shape or form. I also didn't want anyone to be able to turn around to me and say, well, you know, you've got the experience of your great-grandfather, but what do you know about theology? So meeting Wallace, it was an amazing thing. This was important to write because a lot of previous authors, they seem to have either ignored Churchill's spirituality or they found it boring. They were repelled by it. Some people, of course, are just outright hostile to Christianity. So tell us a little of the story about how you became drawn to write this book. Well, it's actually quite interesting. I started as a public speaker in 2005. And ever since then, I was told that I needed to have a book. And people were encouraging me to basically just throw any book onto the market on my great-grandfather and it would be published because, you know, I'm his great-grandson. And I felt that that would be incredibly disrespectful to, to Churchill, you know, after the amazing work that he had done. And so I resisted and resisted. And in 2010, I was so exasperated. I was desperately trying to get my speaking business off the ground without a book. Mm. Um, and I was so exasperated. I looked up to heaven and I just shouted at God. And I was as far away from God as possible. I mean, you know, I'd been a Christian in my life, but I'd walked away from God. And I was really angry with him. And I looked up to heaven. And I shouted. And I said, go on, Lord, you tell me what is the one aspect of my great grandfather's life that has never been written about? I really didn't believe an answer to come, 
But then a few minutes later, I found myself taking a book off the bookshelf, just a random book. It, it happened to be My Early Life, which my great-grandfather wrote in the 1930s. And I just randomly turned to a page and it happened to be talking about his escape from the Boers in South Africa. And I thought, okay, fine, maybe it's a book on South Africa, but then my aunt's already written one of those. So, you know, why another book on South Africa? So I just turned to another random page and it happened to be on the Battle of Omdurman. So I thought, okay, well, maybe it's about the Battle of Omdurman. Anyway, I put the book back on the bookshelf thinking, I don't know, maybe it's just me. And I just picked up another random book and it happened to be one of the biographies that covers the period of the First World War. And once again, I just turned to a random page and on it, I discovered that Churchill's life almost came to an end when he was serving in the, on the front line in the trenches in 1915. This was the thing that really got me because now I had three instances in Churchill's life where he probably should have died. And he didn't. And I couldn't reconcile it. So I started to think, well, maybe there is more to the story than this. Maybe Churchill was right in what he maintained, that his life was both directed and protected by divine intervention. I like the statement that you made about collaborating with your co-author, Wallace Henley, that you wanted someone who wouldn't try to cram words into Churchill's mouth. And that's something that personally really bugs me. I always think of Grover Cleveland and his young wife and how when he was elected president and they got married in the White House and they were big. She was a very big celebrity anyway because she was young and beautiful and they would just stick their faces or her face on soap and patent medicine and snake oil remedies for all kinds of diseases and hair combs and I just find it so repulsive when somebody tries to take a historical figure and put words in their mouth. And I've known you for five years and you've never once said, if my great grandfather was alive, this is what he would say with absolute certainty. And you've never presumed to speak for him. And that's absolutely not what you and Wallace Henley do in God and Churchill. And you don't have to because there's so much in the real historical record. You didn't need to stretch any points here. No, I, we really didn't need to stretch the points at all. And actually, it's interesting you should mention that, because when I started speaking on Churchill, I approached two people. The first was Sir Martin Gilbert, and Martin was very much a mentor of mine. And I said to him, this is what I'm planning on doing. I'm planning on going out and speaking about my great-grandfather. And he said, Jonathan, that's great. But whatever you do, I want you to promise me that you will make sure that you don't try to cover anything up, that you tell the truth, warts and all. And I discovered later on from Martin that actually that was the agreement that he had to make when he was asked to be Churchill's official biographer. Somebody approached him and said, it's great that you're writing the biography on Churchill, but you must make sure that you write the truth, warts and all. And Martin agreed to that. And so I had no intention of making things up. I certainly had no interest in putting words in Churchill's mouth, especially when it came to that sort of thing, because I felt it would be very disrespectful to Churchill. He was a man who clung to truth and certainly clung to historical facts. Whereas, you know, we read it about Hitler and his attachment to history. He claimed that history is always written by the victors. And so it didn't really matter what anyone said at this moment in time. He was going to win the war. And so he could basically write 
whatever he wanted. But Churchill did not have that view. You said Sir Martin Gilbert, his official biographer, used the phrase warts and all, which, uh, of course, comes from Abraham Lincoln. And I often think, gosh, how somebody like Churchill would have felt to know that somebody like Lincoln, who was this great leader who he read so much on the Civil War, he went to Gettysburg, I believe it was, and he corrected one of the tour guides. He absorbed so much history. And certainly before God and Churchill, I didn't realize how much he'd picked up of the Bible texts and how much of these stories you mentioned in there that he wrote an essay on Moses. So I'd never heard of that before. There was so much here for you to work with, as you said, Sir Martin Gilbert mentioned to you. And I think one of the reasons it's overlooked, not just because people are a little uncomfortable with it, maybe, but Churchill wasn't somebody who wore this on his sleeve, I guess, as we'd say. You write in God and Churchill, Churchill was not known for his piety, nor did he pretend to it. And then you say in another part of the book that he looked at the Bible as an operator's manual, sort of for life. And in this book, you seek to help readers, as I said, secular and non-secular alike, understand the vision that your great-grandfather had of the almighty providence. He referred to the old man sometimes, and people would say, well, who are you talking about? And he would point up at the sky. And just what sort of vision do you think that your great-grandfather had of the almighty? Um, he said that he certainly didn't want to have his job. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't envy God his job in any shape or form. But he most certainly believed in God. And actually, there is a time that we actually see the evidence of this during the bombings of London in 1940. Churchill very much liked to go out and go walking in St. James's Park in the evenings. And his bodyguard, Commander Walter Thompson, would go with him. And on this one occasion, the sirens started to go off just as they were walking back to number 10 Downing Street. And a loud explosion was heard and they looked back and saw almost exactly where Churchill had been standing. This bomb had landed. Had Churchill stayed there for another two minutes, then he would have very definitely been killed. And Thompson was a man who fretted an awful lot because he felt that my great grandfather always put himself in unnecessary danger. And he looked at Churchill hoping that great-grandpapa would see this incident and say, OK, well, I I'm never going to do that again. But instead, with eerie confidence, great-grandpapa said to him, don't worry, there is someone looking after me besides you. Well, Thompson initially misunderstood and asked, do you mean Sergeant Davis? And Churchill shook his head and said, no. And he pointed to the sky. He said, I have a mission to perform. And that person intends to see it is performed. So Churchill acknowledged that God existed. He acknowledged that God was there. And throughout the Second World War, Churchill gave hope to the people, not by looking at him and his promises, but instead looking at God. You know, in God's good time, the world will be liberated. And I wanted to just very quickly touch back on a point that you made with regards to the accuracy of the facts. We made sure that whenever we quoted something where Churchill 
was talking about God or acknowledging the Bible or acknowledging God, we made sure I'm going to read you a Churchill quote, which is on page 119 of the book. It's about Moses and it says, we believe that the most scientific view, the most up-to-date and, and rationalistic conception will find its fullest satisfaction in taking the Bible story literally and in identifying one of the greatest human beings, Moses, with the most decisive leap forward ever discernible in the human story. We may be sure that all these things happened just as they are set out according to Holy Writ. Well, I could have taken that, that quote and I basically could change it round. We made sure that we quoted fully. We didn't cut anything, anything at all. We didn't try to fit a square peg into a round hole. Yeah, that's definitely the important thing that you do in yeah. the book. And you see that. You have whole excerpts that you take of paragraphs at a time and you put those all in the book. I wanted to make sure that anything that we put in this book could not be disputed. We had already been given a gift from the point of view of Churchill has been written about over and over and over and over again. So his life is completely known by everybody and the history surrounding it is undisputed. I wanted to use that history, not manipulate it, but use that history to show God in Churchill's life and the way that God intervened in Churchill's life. We had to make sure that there was never a chance that anyone could say, well, you've manipulated Churchill's words. You've changed something round. You've quoted him saying something he didn't say. And so I made absolutely sure that we sourced any quote by three accounts that were written. And that was the case. And so this is why I really want to label that, because I want people to know this was written completely unbiased. We wrote this on the evidence that we found. We didn't look for the evidence after writing the book. The fact that Churchill states that these things happened according to Holy Writ, one can, one can then believe from that that he did have a faith in Jesus. He did have a faith in God. He did believe that Jesus was the son of God because he said here, these stories can all be taken on board. And we may be sure that all these things happen just as they are set out according to Holy Writ. And he's written off like many modern day politicians who use God or roll God out for political purposes to either curry votes or, or curry favor. You know, many, many of them do that. And it's it's terrible. Churchill had no need to do it and no wish to do it. He firmly believed what he was talking about. Or they claim to speak for him, which is something you were just talking <laughs> yeah. about. People will claim to speak for God. And again, in the book, yeah. this is a key distinction between Hitler and Churchill. And part of the reason that he had these Bible stories in him, I wanted to mentioned the name Elizabeth Ann Everest, of course, his governess. Yes. Tell us how she sort of becomes this titanic figure in his life. Victorian Britain and rich parents very rarely looked after their children. They very much believed that children should be seen but not heard. And so they didn't want to look after my great-grandfather. And so they appointed a nanny and Mrs. Everest was selected and she became an incredible friend of my great-grandfather's. And she would teach him. She would read copious tracts from the Bible. She taught him how to pray. And she would pray with him. And she would teach him hymns. And they would sing hymns together. So that was his first exposure to Christianity or to any form of religious instruction. 
And he took that and later on in life, you know, at the age of 21, he walked away from God. He thought this is rubbish. You know, this can't be true. And he started reading people like Darwin and he read Macaulay and people like that who offered a different worldview. And so he started to really question the faith that Mrs. Everest had given him or that she had exposed him to. And this did cause him quite an issue. And I think really this was probably that, um, you know, the reason this happened was really because Mrs. Everest had died recently and he was trying to compensate. But he very definitely walked away from God, but then very definitely came back and certainly said that any doubt that he had had before was cleared up when he was, um, certainly when he was on the battlefield of Omdurman. So Churchill himself acknowledges that he had a crisis in faith, but he also acknowledges that he came back. As I say, Elizabeth Everest was the woman who, who introduced him to God in the first place. And he merely took that passion that she had and looked into it. He read the Bible, according to Martin Gilbert, 16 times. And Churchill had a photographic memory, so he actually would remember large tracts of the Bible. And he used those in his speeches because they were very relevant. But Churchill didn't say things for the sake of saying it. He said them because he believed in them. Yes, it's very easy to dismiss it as just being rhetoric because, of course, if nothing else, the Bible has fantastic rhetoric. But yes. there's plenty of atheists that could quote it. Certainly the devil, it says in the Bible, can quote it. He'll know the verses as well as you. Don't be surprised. But it's uh, it's something in his life. He gets to this period when he's in his early 20s. He's sort of this young man in a hurry. He's really going to make it. He's ambitious. He's Nobody's going to stop him. He'll knock on the door of heaven itself if he has to and wake them up at 3 a.m. if they sleep up there. And this is a period covered very well in Simon Reed's book, Winston Churchill Reporting, Adventures of a Young War Correspondent. Churchill comes under fire for the first time. It's his 21st birthday, of course, famously. And that's sort of a little bit of a fun story, you know, but it's not the immediate deliverances that he gets later. And yet after this brush with death, these first brushes with death, another time bullets coming into the tent, Churchill writes his mother and says, quote, besides, I'm so conceited, I do not believe the gods would create so potent a being as myself for so prosaic an ending. And you make the distinction in God and Churchill that this bravado in time, especially when there's much more serious near misses, the trenches of World War One, he gets hit by the cab in New York City on Fifth Avenue and says he should have been squashed like a gooseberry. Nobody can believe that he survives. You make this great case. This bravado matures into real courage and a real belief that God has a purpose for him. Yes, Churchill had a vision. I mean, when I say a vision, he had a prophecy at the age of 16. And he was speaking to a very good friend of his at Harrow School, a man called Merlin deGrasse Evans. They were both the same age. It was a, a Sunday evening after Evensong, and they were talking about their futures. And it was at that moment that Churchill predicted the situation of the Second World War and predicted that he himself would be in command of the forces of London and that he would lead England and the empire to victory. And speaking of that victory, before we go on, Churchill, of course, when he gets the call to form a new government, when Chamberlain is resigning because Hitler has broken his word and invaded Poland, 
Churchill says he felt as if he was walking with destiny, that every step he'd taken in his life up to that point was merely a preparation for that. Yep. And this is something you open the book with, this vision that we're talking about that Churchill had at 16. The quote at the top of the very first chapter is, this country will be subjected somehow to a tremendous invasion. By what means, I do not know. But I tell you, I will be in command of the defenses of London, and I shall save London and England from disaster, unquote. Now, this Evans boy, like Churchill at the time, is only 16, and he's so struck by this, he presses Churchill about this at the time and said, will you be a general in command of the troops? And Churchill says that these dreams of the future are blurred, but the main objective is clear. London will be in danger, and in the high position I shall occupy, it will fall to me to save the capital and save the empire. And it would have been easy to just write this off as Churchill bragging, but this isn't him saying it. This is somebody else remembers at that time. It makes such a big impression on Evans, this whole idea that London is going to be attacked somehow by some new method that Churchill can't see. Remember, but London, it was impossible for London to be a battlefield unless you could get there by aircraft or unless you could actually fight your way through from the coast. So to say that London was going to be attacked was almost ridiculous. And unless you actually think that aircraft exist. Well, in 1891, when he made this prediction, the only recorded flight was from a physicist, Samuel Langley. And it wasn't it didn't even appear in the in the newspapers. And it was only, it only ran for about a quarter of a mile. It's highly unlikely that Churchill would actually have known that Samuel Langley existed. But I'm happy to accept that very possibly Churchill may have read about it somewhere. And so that gave leave to him being able to predict that one day London would be a battlefield. So let's just dismiss that. And let's say that Churchill did know about Samuel Langley and take it a step further to have predicted London would be attacked is one thing. But to then predict that during that time, you are going to be in charge of the forces of London. Okay, might be a lucky guess. He could have been in the British Army, you know, gone into politics, something like that. It's possible that he might just be lucky. To then state with absolute confidence that not only would he be in charge of the forces of London, but it would fall to him to lead England and the empire to a victory, that's when the prediction becomes completely and utterly impossible. This prediction and this thing about London being attacked, this is something that's only told to Churchill's son by his friend when he's writing the first biography of Winston Churchill. So he really had this vision for himself, and he had it multiple times. And when you read God and Churchill, you can't help but see this humbling process that he goes through. He escapes from the Boer prisoner of war camp, and he's out there in the middle of the veldt, and he has no food left, I don't think, at this point. He jumps over. He has no map. He doesn't speak the local languages. He has very little money. He has no plan, really. And he sees the fire in the distance, night. He's been following Orion, and he decides, well, I'll go towards the fire. Maybe, maybe somebody will help me. Turns out that it's a coal mine. I believe it's the smelter. And he's looking at all these houses and he says, well, I'm just done. And you describe this moment in the book where he's at this spiritual, physical, emotional low, and he doesn't know what to do. He realizes it's not in his power at all to save himself from this situation. And he really 
gets an incredible intervention there where this feeling comes over him and he walks to this one house, knocks on the door, gives them sort of a fake story, uh, says he was thrown from the train. And the gentleman says, I think you better tell me the truth. And he says, well, I've escaped. I'm, you know, Winston Churchill. And at this time, he's wanted dead or alive. You've seen the famous sign, of course. And the man says, thank God you knocked on this door because I'm the only English house in this neighborhood. I've been forced to stay here. If you'd knocked on any other door, they would have turned you in. Yes. And this is that incredible humbling moment where Churchill says, I realized then that the Almighty had saved me, had delivered me really from this moment. Again, I don't want to put words in his mouth either, but that's just such an incredible moment. And then to see he has so many more that you outlined in the book and his reaction to it as compared to Adolf Hitler's reaction to deliverance from things like the Valkyrie bomb that doesn't kill him. It just really paints the full picture that people just haven't seen really until you step back and did it in God and Churchill. Well, it's interesting. Churchill saw himself as an instrument to be used. He saw himself first as a servant. He didn't see himself, you know, as an amazing person at all. And it's interesting, at the end of his life, he actually said, I have done so much to achieve so little. He never really gave credit to himself for anything. Whereas Hitler came to power and he didn't, well, actually, even before he came to power, you see it in Mein Kampf. It's not that he didn't believe in God. It's not that he didn't believe in Jesus. But he saw himself as equal to Jesus. Uh, There was a record that was kept by Martin Bormann, and it was called, I, I believe it was Table Talk. It was Hitler's conversations, private conversations with Martin Bormann. And in it, he basically says that what Jesus was unable to finish, was unable to complete, I, Adolf Hitler, will complete. You know, the arrogance to put yourself up there with Jesus was incredible. Whereas Churchill didn't see that. Churchill realized, as you said, and and if I may, I'd like to give you that quote that you just made. I realized with awful force that no exercise of my own feeble wit and strength could save me from my enemies. And that without the assistance of that high power, which interferes in the eternal sequence of causes and effects more often than we are always prone to admit, I could never succeed. Churchill then goes on to say that suddenly, without the slightest reason, all my doubts disappeared. And it was certainly by no process of logic that they were dispelled. I just felt quite clear that I would go to the Kafka Kral. And so that was that was where he was was aiming towards these um, towards these flames. So Churchill himself was prepared to acknowledge the power of God and acknowledge the fact that he as a human being wasn't able to do anything about this. Hitler, on the other hand, had no humility whatsoever and so certainly was not prepared to credit it to God. He was nobody's servant. Nobody was going to tell him what he could and could not do. He was the Fuhrer of Germany, and he knew best. And he was there to save Germany, or save the world for the Germans, whereas Jesus was there to save the world, the soul at a time, for God. And you talk about in the book how Hitler, very much a mirror image here, a cracked mirror of your great-grandfather, where he also has a similar prophecy when he is 16, and yet he 
perverts it so much and he rebels and he decides, as you said, he's literally going to take the churches and they're either going to let him be the new Messiah, the new Fuhrer. He rewrites the Lord's Prayer. He rewrites something as simple as table grace to be giving thanks to the Fuhrer, not thanks to God. He calls Christianity a hypocritical trap later. Goebbels says that it was a that there was an insoluble opposition between Christian and German Germanic heroic worldview. They really do try to supplant this position of God and take power and become authoritarians rather than exercise authority, which is what Churchill did. And he had so much of that power in wartime Britain, and yet he never abused it in the ways that Hitler did, which seems like an obvious thing to say, but it is so true. And that is because he felt he had God in the person of Mrs. Everest really watching over him. When he dies at 90, he still has her picture on his bedstand. Oh, yes. It's not as if it's a huge bedroom with all kinds of frills and things. I mean, he's his humble room and he always kept her there sort of over his shoulder watching him. That's a piece of the puzzle of World War II when people ask questions that so much has been overlooked about Churchill. It's great that you brought it to life here in God and Churchill. Well, thank you. I have to say the project itself was incredibly interesting to do and Every time I reread God and Churchill, and obviously I, I've, I've reread it many times, mm-hmm. I have to say that I have been thrilled with the evidence that we have found. It was incredible. It really was. And it just surprises me every single time that I look at it. And I, and I sort of think to myself, you know, did we really write that? that? I have to give credit to God for leading us to the evidence that we found. Because the project could have taken years and years and years and years to produce if God himself had not intervened. I I do find the book interesting, and many people who have read it have have said also that they find it interesting. Sorry, I'm not trying to blow my own trumpet here and say that (laughs) I find it interesting or anything like that. And I'm hoping that you'll edit that out. You know, (laughs) I I mean, (laughs) it's... I find the book interesting. I like the book. Okay? Yeah, well, you should. I, yeah, it's, okay, it's, fine. I, I, okay, it would be I'm terrible not biased, to. But, but I, well, yes, but, okay, I'm somewhat biased. But, you know, I look at it from my great-grandfather's point of view. You know, Churchill produced one novel. He, having written 40 books, he produced one novel in his lifetime that was called Savrola. And as soon as it was off the press and was released, the first thing he did was contact all of his friends and tell them, whatever you do, don't read the book. <laughs> yeah. You know, and yeah. and actually Savrola is, is a wonderful book. It's a, it's a lovely book that he's, um you know, he's written and it's quite obvious that it's, it's written about him. But I reread God and Churchill and I'm absolutely thrilled that we found this evidence and it's a privilege. It's an honor to be able to pass that out or, or do what Churchill said and, and fling it out to the public and see what their reaction to it is. My guest is Jonathan Sands, Winston Churchill's great-grandson. And I can tell you, having known Jonathan, that when he says he's biased, if anything, a sober and honest man like Jonathan is biased against his work. He's very hard on himself. He's very much holding himself to account. So the fact that you enjoy this book so much, it really, to me, says something because you love this man. I mean, he died 10 years before you were born, of course, but you take this very seriously, this legacy, and 
The book, again, God and Churchill, How the Great Leader's Sense of Divine Destiny Changed His Troubled World and Offers Hope for Ours. And it's great not to gloss over the second part of that. We know what he did for his world, but also hope. I mean, hope is something that we have on a lot of posters, I guess, and it's promised by a lot of quick fixes and cults, and the shelves are full of self-help books and this kind of thing. But Jonathan really tried to do something for his fellow man by writing this book, him and Wallace Henley. And I want to encourage people to follow Jonathan on Twitter at Jonathan Sands, one word. Like him at facebook.com slash WSC speaker and visit his website, leadlikechurchill.org. You will get some hope when you go there and it doesn't cost any extra bandwidth. I want to play a clip here for you, speaking of hope in the face of darkness. It's from one of your great-grandfather's most famous speeches, most moving speeches. The date is June 18, 1940. The place, the House of Commons. The time, after the evacuation of the British Expeditionary Force from Dunkirk. Here's Winston Churchill. But General Vagon calls the Battle of France in over. I expected the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free, and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us, therefore, brace ourselves to our duties, and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. Those words still have such power to motivate us, 75 years later. And I wanted to point out two phrases there that you analyze here in God and Churchill. One is Christian civilization. As we said, based on the previous scholarship, easy to dismiss as just rhetoric. And it's a phrase I think that makes maybe modern people feel a little bit uncomfortable at times. The other is perverted science, which when you talk about that in the book, you realize maybe that should make us more uncomfortable than Christian civilization when you're talking about the things that the Nazis were doing and a lot of this sort of perversion of the human experience. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about what people learn about those two phrases and how your great-grandfather viewed them when they read God and Churchill. Well, when he referred to Christian civilization, he wasn't necessarily referring just to Christians. It's widely accepted that civilized countries have certain laws. They follow tenets such as the Ten Commandments. And leaders, decent leaders, 
recognize that the Sermon on the Mount is, is as my great-grandfather said, the last word in ethics. Great-grandpa said, the more closely we follow the Sermon on the Mount, the more likely we are to succeed in our endeavors. Now, Churchill recognized that there is a vast difference between Christian civilization and Nazism, and also indeed communism. Nazism and communism, they are all ways of life that enslave, whereas Christianity is but its very nature is something that is is all about freedom and it's all about being set free and so it's non-restrictive from that point of view of course you have certain laws that you need to follow the ten commandments and and other laws that come into that and, and things like that you know those are just basic tenets of that but the fact of the matter is you have the freedom to choose whereas with nazism you had no choice if you didn't follow Hitler, then you were either imprisoned or you were dead. You know, for instance, if I take the new Lord's Prayer that Adolf Hitler was quite happy to sanction, the new Lord's Prayer under the Nazis was basically this. Adolf Hitler, you are our great leader. Thy name makes the enemy tremble. Thy Third Reich comes Thy will alone is law upon the earth. Let us hear daily thy voice and order us by thy leadership, for we will obey to the end, even with our lives. We praise thee. Hail Hitler. You see, he had the audacity to take things that were from the Bible and change it. And in Revelations, it's very, very clear that there is a big problem for a person who decides to come along and either take out or add in anything to to the words that are in the Bible. And from that point of view, I wanted to make sure that when we wrote God and Churchill, that we adhered to that same warning in Revelations, that we didn't take out in history, and we didn't put in to history, that what we recorded was absolutely accurate. And that's also one of the commandments right there that was trampled here under the jackboot of the Nazis was have no God before me. And they put yes. Hitler right in there. And whatever you think, as you're making the case here, and as we've mentioned about this not being a just limited to a Christian bookstore sort of book, mm. anybody can see that following that would have derailed everything in Germany. That was the key thing, trying to put yourself so high above. If there's one thing that comes out in God and Churchill, it's that this is the key difference between Hitler and your great-grandfather, this messianic belief in yourself that you are on par with God and the belief that Churchill had that's more than just rhetoric about serving and serving people was the ultimate goal. Yeah, I mean, you know, Churchill genuinely went out to serve the people. That's why during the bombings of London, Churchill would often be seen amongst the people, comforting them. On occasions, the king and queen would join him as well. And they would go out amongst the rubble. And it was very dangerous. You know, the amount of times that Hitler tried to take pot shots at great grandpa was unbelievable. <laughs> we had about five or six occasions during the Second World War that we could have taken Hitler out. But the decision to not take Hitler out was based on the fact that the nightmare that would follow 
would be worse than Hitler. And at least with Hitler, we had Mein Kampf, which, as my great-grandfather said, laid out his entire plan. So, yeah. you know, if the leaders in Britain had paid any attention in the 1930s, they would have seen very clearly what Hitler wrote in the 1920s. You know, it was being rolled out, and we would have been able to prepare for that. And you make the point there a minute ago about him not meaning Christian civilization as limited, meaning it in a broader no. sense. And I yes. wanted to make sure I mentioned the 1907 letter. Churchill's in his early 30s at this point. This got a lot of press recently about his sister-in-law writing him, urging him not to convert to Islam. And I wanted to let you tell us if there was ever any real chance that he was going to do that. To my knowledge, no. And I've obviously read that letter several times and, and, and looked over it. No, uh, I can confidently say to my knowledge that absolutely no, there was no, there was no chance of that. You have to look at Winston Churchill, look at the personality and the character. Churchill got enthusiastic about things, you know, and, and, and would jump up and down and, and be, you know, it's a, a bit like me, you know, over enthusiastic <laughs> yeah. about a, a lot of things. And, you know, if you, when you hear me speak about God and Churchill in speeches and things like that, you hear that massive enthusiasm come out. And that's exactly what he was like. So he was talking in his letters, he was in his communications, he was talking with great enthusiasm about things and this, that and the other. And so it could quite easily, one could quite easily misunderstand what he is saying and assume that he is considering a conversion to, to Islam. But definitely that, that was not the case. He was just being enthusiastic about something he had discovered. So, you know, do I think that Churchill would have converted to Islam? No. Uh, it, do I have categorical evidence to support that? No. But what I can say is that the evidence that we present in God and Churchill it indicates that the God he believed in was the Christian God and not any other God. So it, he didn't believe in Allah or anything like that. He he had rejected every other faith and he selected to believe in the Christian God. And when I read that that was his future sister-in-law that wrote him that letter, I thought any of us who's ever gotten a letter from a relative, much less an in-law, telling us, oh my gosh, you don't do this following thing and takes what you've said and missed the point of it. I think that may have been the case there because, for instance, in God and Churchill, you make note of Churchill's quote about Muslims from the River War, yes. which is frequently found on social media. It's used to indict Islam completely. And you yeah. and Wallace point out that Churchill found some splendid qualities in Muslim warriors. And it occurred to me that this was a, also a characteristic of him. He would write often about both sides of a war and he would write about his enemies and he would he talked about the Boers certainly he said he was expecting them to just be rather bloodthirsty I guess and they one of them tosses him a hat for instance to, because he sees how fair skinned Churchill is and he would burn terribly easy and this is something that really helped him also in World War II after it to not repeat the mistakes of the Treaty of Versailles which led directly to Hitler's rise because he does extend a hand to Germany instead of this punishing peace that would have just led to a fourth war after the War of 1870 and the war, First World War, of course, the Second World War. He really helped to show that mercy to his enemies. And when I read the subhead of your book here, Offering Hope to Our Troubled World, I wanted to ask what lessons you think Churchill has to teach us about, really, there's nihilists now and the threats that they pose, ISIS, the Iranian theocracy. I wanted to know 
what you would draw from Churchill to give us advice today and give us hope, really, as we face these things. Dictators ride to and fro on tigers they dare not dismount. The tigers are getting hungry. (laughs) I want to just go back and comment on your quote from the River War. Churchill was a very balanced person from the point of view of, as you said, he saw when he was speaking in the River War, he was warning about Muslims, warning about Islam. He was warning about fanatics. And he then went on to say, and this is something that is left out so much. He went on to say that there are some good Muslims. And he pointed out that those, that a lot of them, they fight in the British army and everything, and they are decent people. So Churchill made sure that there was a distinction. It sickens me that people manipulate great grandpapa's words and use them as a divisive means to basically do exactly what Hitler did in Germany with the Jews. And, you know, he said he blamed all the Jews and said, all the Jews are responsible for this. The Jews got us in this situation. The Jews are stealing from us and doing this and doing that. And he blamed all the Jews for this. And so naturally, all of Germany, following Adolf Hitler, looked at the Jews and said, okay, fine, well, they're all responsible for our lot in life. It's not as cut and dry as that. And if you take Churchill's words out of context, then of course you're going to see a man who is a warmonger or a man who is racist or a man who dislikes a certain religion. Churchill had been very particular throughout the Second World War to separate the German people from the Nazis. He made an absolute categorical distinction between the two because he was determined that what happened at the end of the First World War and the rejection that Germany felt at the end of the First World War would not be repeated at the end of the Second World War. And that was a great testament to him because it showed that he didn't want revenge to be taken upon these people. He saw a great value in individual people. He saw a value in the German people. And it's amazing if we look at Germany today, we see that Germany today has achieved, peacefully achieved, every single thing that Hitler wanted to achieve for Germany and so much more. And they have done it despite that monstrous lunatic. It's amazing when you say it that way. I had never even thought of it. They did what you said Hitler could have done had he not really usurped all these basic values of Christianity or of the Judeo-Christian ethic, and also this perverted science, scientism, you refer to it in the book. This is cults, the occult, false miracles, a general devaluing of human life. This all happened in Hitler's Germany, and we see it today. We see that life is so cheap, and this book offers really a roadmap in a way, just as Churchill helped rally Britain to victory, victory over many of these challenges that we have. I don't think I've read a book that was so inspiring in quite some time. And you you. really achieved that goal. Thank you very much. Dean, I have to say that with God and Churchill, yes, we do refer to science and scientism and how science has become perverted these days. One of the main reasons that we've seen science become perverted over the years is because it is fashionable. It has been fashionable for many years to separate science from religion or from any sort of explanation that could possibly be divine in any shape or form. But if you look at science as something that was actually created to complement 
what we read in the Bible and to explain a lot of this world that is written of in the Bible, then you realize that science works in tandem with religion. And if we stopped trying to pit science against it, you know, and actually, as Churchill said, actually stopped trying to reconcile these stories with science, we wouldn't be missing the point. We would see the awesomeness of God within it. People have gone through over and over again. I mean, you know, Darwin, his, his, you know, his theory of evolution, he was apparently devastated that people decided to take his theory and use it as the basis of a new religion or use it as the basis to say that God doesn't exist or that, you know, this is impossible that, you know, the world was created in six days. Can I remind you that up until uh, the latter part of the 1800s, the idea, the concept of a virgin birth was impossible. But I believe it was in 1884 when the first woman was artificially inseminated. This scientist proved that it was possible. You know, if we stop trying to attack Christianity or attack religion in, in any shape or form by using science, then maybe we might actually be able to draw a breath and learn something from it. I want to close with a question of your destiny crossing with Wallace's. And I think probably with a lesser co-author, you might have had a lot of falling outs and the book maybe never would have been finished. So give a little shout out here to your co-author, Wallace Henley. With the greatest pleasure. The partnership has absolutely blossomed. And I have to say, you know, Wallace and I, yes, sure, we've, we've had disagreements. You know, there have been times that we, we have got upset with each other. But we recognize that the most important thing was not the argument that we were necessarily having, the disagreement that we were having, but the mission that we were working on. And so it didn't matter that we had disagreements because within seconds it was we were laughing about it and it was sort of, you know, that was just ridiculous. Let's just come on, let's move on. This is we're talking about the most ridiculous thing in the world. Wallace is a very rational person. And he's also an incredibly supportive and loving man. And and I have to say very forgiving as well <laughs> and incredibly patient. Um, and so in Wallace, I found a great mentor and I found somebody that I could work with, somebody who had the courage to stand up to me when I was wandering off track, somebody who would praise me whenever I did something right and say, you know, that was really good, Jonathan. But equally, somebody who's just not going to sit there and just take it from me, but really was going to challenge me and somebody who wanted to be challenged by me. So it was a brilliant partnership. It was a perfect partnership. And I said, I reckon that I believe, and so does Wallace, that this was a partnership made in heaven. Because without me, this book couldn't have happened. And without Wallace, this book wouldn't have been possible. And we're going to collaborate on another book together. And I foresee collaborating on several other books together. You know, I joke with Wallace, he's 73 years old. And I said, Wallace, under no circumstances are you allowed to die <laughs> until we have finished writing books together. And I said, even if I have to keep you alive on life support, I will be keeping you alive on life support because you're going to be my co-author. <laughs> he laughs at that. 
I have to say the one thing I've been looking forward to since the book came out is very much going around with Wallace and talking about God and Churchill. I've seen the speech that he's been giving and is going to give, and he's seen the speech that I'm giving, and we're going to do a speech that we're going to combine and do together as a sort of conversation. I've learned so much from Wallace, and uh, his wife Irene is just lovely. She's amazing, and I couldn't have met nicer people, and I have been so blessed by this wonderful relationship with them. Jonathan Sands, co-author of God and Churchill with Wallace Henley. I want to thank you both for making it through all those rough patches, because if you hadn't, I wouldn't have had this book that really offers something for me personally and has something out there for everybody listening, wherever you fall on the religious spectrum, wherever you are in your walk of life, whatever you feel about history. If you're open-minded or if you just want the full picture of Churchill's role in saving our world from a new dark age, you will find this book a rewarding read. God and Churchill, thank you for joining me today, Jonathan. I really appreciate it. Bless you, Dean. Thank you so much indeed for your time. Again, the book is God and Churchill, How the Great Leader's Sense of Divine Destiny Changed His Troubled World and Offers Hope for Ours. Talking about faith is a very personal subject, and people run the spectrum from devotion to hostility. But to get a full picture of Winston Churchill and how he rallied civilization— and to answer the question of how Adolf Hitler perverted a country as advanced and as into the arts and music and culture as Germany, we really can't overlook the central role of Christianity and the corruption of it and the corruption of that broader sense of God and the Almighty above man that Jonathan talks about in the book. As always, if you'd like to purchase God in Churchill or any other book we talk about, please click through the link at historyauthor.com. We get a few stamps in our ration book every time you do. I'd like to thank Jonathan and his co-author, Wallace Henley, for producing such an enlightening work of scholarship on Winston Churchill's life. And please, follow at Jonathan Sands on Twitter, like facebook.com slash WSC speaker, and visit leadlikechurchill.org. Well, that's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us next time for another trip into the past here on iHeartRadio or wherever it is you're listening. And remember, if you do subscribe to us on iTunes, please leave a review. Thanks so much for listening, and happy reading.